0: A key part of the innovation and startup ecosystem is the notion that it is a repeated game, which is that most startups fail. That's actually just a fact of life, which means you probably want multiple shots on goal before you hit it. And the only way you get multiple shots on goal is if you maintain a reputation for integrity so that people want to continue to do business with you.
1: Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Au, venture capitalist, serial founder, Harvard MBA, science fiction nerd, and dad of two daughters. Every week, we debate startup news, interview changemakers, answer listener questions, and share personal insights. Join our movement of over 40,000 members and get transcripts, resources, and community at www.bravesea.com. Stay well and stay brave. HG Mall is a healthcare marketplace in Southeast Asia connecting patients to over 1,800 medical providers. This covers multiple categories such as dental, aesthetics, and elective surgeries. Over 300,000 patients have accessed more affordable healthcare via HG Mall. Get yourself a well-deserved health checkup. If you're in Thailand, go to hgmall.co.uk th if you're in indonesia go to hgmall.id hey sheen how's life
0: pretty good jeremy pretty good i'm in japan so there's some incredible powder here so highly recommend dc
1: powder you you mean not pharmaceutical but definitely snow powder which you've what been kind skiing. of
0: singaporean do you think i am jeremy of course i mean <laughs> i was to say it
1: could be talc Powder, you know, it could be some kind all kinds of oh, powder, right? Powder is yeah. such a cool ice term. Yeah, I'm also I in know. New York right now on vacation with my two kids and wife. And it's been also a good vacation as well. We also had some good powder when we were skiing in the Catskills two weeks ago. So yeah, nice. good times. And talking about yeah. sports, you know, one of the things that we were laughing about recently was the Peter Thiel's funding the Enhanced Games. So basically, it's Olympics but anybody can apply and there's no drug testing at all. And basically, I think the perspective is that they have is that they want to see what people can do if they use whatever interventions they could, like from pharmaceutical to all these other things. So, yeah.
0: I mean, I feel like A lot of tech people read a lot of sci-fi, probably, when they were growing up. Mm, And I feel like there's a consistent storyline in sci-fi about being able to enhance yourself, right? Whether it's physically or neurologically, whether through drugs or implants, uploading your consciousness, all of these sorts of things. And so that doesn't surprise me a lot. And I think given how many drug scandals there have been in international competition, like regardless of sport, I would admit to being somewhat curious to see what happens when we stop pretending that there aren't people doping. And I should just say yeah. like, okay, let's see what you can do, right? And it might be horrifying or it might be like, oh, wow, you are pushing the limits of like human performance. And it's like kind of crazy.
1: Maybe I'm more of a so conservative. I, I would be
0: super curious. On
1: this one, because I think it obviously will have better performance. I mean, there's some interesting incentives. I don't know which athlete that currently runs for the Olympics would ever run for the enhanced games because basically they're saying that we are doping to some extent. So I don't think it's going to be your classic olympic and there's a huge number of like company and corporate and country sponsorship through the various leagues to get there so i can't imagine any name brand athletes really doing it but yeah i think it might open up a new like you said, tier of athletes who want to try and why not not many people want to try it so they'll try it and i think People tune in to see what's going on. I'm pretty sure the headlines will go crazy as they already have about this. Maybe I'm worried about long-term consequences. Think
0: about the technology enhancement. But think about the technology enhancements people already have, right? The shoes that provide the springiness to the runners, right? The, what is it, jammer swimsuits that make swimmers more streamlined or whatever it is. Sport didn't die when we added those things, right? So, yeah, I don't know. I'm a little bit more laissez-faire, right? Like, you have free will you have agency, you want to choose to compete in this, go for it, you know, your decision to do that does not impact my life, and maybe I'll learn something.
1: Obviously, you know, I can't disagree from an individual's perspective to do it, you know, that the concept of putting this arena does rub me the wrong way, I guess. And just being an old school person, rubbing people the wrong way, what's been interesting thing has been a bunch of people who have been pretty unhappy, and some people have been amused by the recent release of Tech in Asia, right? Uh, their recent release Glass Wall, which is an anonymous founder reviews of VCs. And, you know, there have been quite a spread of reviews, obviously, for all of the various VCs. Yeah. What are your thoughts, Shin?
0: Yeah. I mean, I poked around and, you know, folks have been sending me screenshots. And so I think... On one hand, in general, I'm in favor of more transparency for the ecosystem. I think that is really helpful for people who are new, first-time founders, first-time people raising money, things like that. I think it helps to incent better behavior if we have more transparency. My concern, though, is if you go through the flow, there's no... Sort of authentication or validation, because it is anonymous, you don't actually know if whoever is submitting the review actually pitched or actually received right. money. And so I feel like this could be very easily overwhelmed with spam, which would reduce its helpfulness to people. I agree. So I don't know if the Tech in Asia product team is listening, but if you are, and I think it's a good initiative, would really encourage you to think about the user experience and how to introduce some form of authentication into it.
1: Yeah, I think that requires, obviously, a level of curation. And the truth is, I did think about launching this because similar models have been launched in the past. Y Combinator does have founder reviews of VCs, which are quite useful. And obviously, it's relatively authenticated, right? Because to some extent, there's a trust community um, and everyone's authenticated be a founder. I think there's a lot of value from it. For myself, I was just like thinking about all the things I could be doing. And I was like, ah, I think it's going to be very interesting as a as a hook for folks to understand. And to be honest, it's something that I have gotten to know because, you know, I'm a VC who has gotten to know all of the other VCs. I'm a VC that's also heard, you know, complaints from founders about other VCs. And I've been a founder before, right? You know, it took me like one, two, three years to really form a, I think, relatively I would say, balanced view of all the plays in the ecosystem. And so, reading this directory has been relatively interesting and fun because I think as of now, I think it's roughly directionally correct. But like you said, I think it's only a matter of time before the spam comes in. I think we have two types. One is, it would be of detractors of VCs who may not necessarily have found it, so they're not authentic. So they're just attacking other VCs so just drag them down. And the other, of course, is that, you know, I think we're going to see VCs deploy their portfolio companies or other folks to help them write positive reviews of themselves right to defend themselves so i think that's where i think glassdoor does a better job like i think that level authentication using like work emails and things like that was a good approach to do it but i'm sure at the end of the day this must be driving a ton of traffic to the technasia site because you know it it is a fresh source of i want to say gossip but at least you know has this sense of assessment and fun to read
0: yeah i mean i think it's not an easy thing right because a lot of people pitch vcs but don't necessarily receive funding and so you could sort of see that like if you didn't get funding, you'd be disgruntled, possibly. And so that might motivate you to write a negative review. And so I think in the product design, you have to think about balancing like how much of it is, hey, I didn't get funded versus how much of it was like, I don't think they ran a good process. I wasn't mm. treated well. And it's not about the funding. And I think it's like an interesting product challenge.
1: And I think it goes back to what we discussed in the past, which is that, you know, I think, you know, VCs are up their game, right? Because VCs are competing with each other for the best founders in order to have space at the table and be able to deploy capital. And part of it, like we've discussed before, is it's not just being very nice to people that you want to say yes to, but also it's about being professional and how you say no, right? Because, you know, everybody's going to get dinged, you know, in some level of volume of due flow, like you have to say no. And if somebody wants to say no, if somebody disgruntled at you just because you said no to them, you know, that's, I think, a relative of you consistent rate. But I think when I was a founder, when VCs said no to me, there were VCs who said no to me, and I respected that. And there were VCs who said no to me, rudely. And there were VCs who ghosted me and (laughs) dragged it out forever. And it was just, I think, there's a spread, right? So I think on an absolute basis, I think definitely there's that aspect of founders may be disgruntled because they never got fundraising. But I think on a relative basis, I think those reviews should shake out right and to some extent. Although it would disadvantage those that have the most deal flow, I would say, because they will have the most send out the most nodes versus it would mildly benefit the smaller VCs who most people have not actually gotten that many nodes from them.
0: Yeah, but I mean, just because you do fewer deals doesn't mean you don't look at the same amount of stuff. But I mean, I think if we take a step back, though, I do think that an important part of diligence for the founder is to talk to other people who've taken money from that investor and not necessarily just on their reference list, but you can look at what their portfolio companies are. You can find someone on LinkedIn, things like that, and just be like, hey, I have a term sheet. I'm considering taking money from so-and-so. I noticed that they invested in you. Like, how's your experience been with them? Because it is a relationship you're going to have for many years. And so I, I do think it's worth that level of diligence when you're constructing your route. I hope that the Tech in Asia tool is part of that diligence, but I, I am concerned that in its current incarnation it may become overwhelmed by bots.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. And I think the interesting part is that some, markets, especially in Southeast Asia, are more opaque and some markets are more transparent, right? So I think for folks, especially in Singapore, it's relatively dense. I think there's a sense that Singaporean founders, especially those who are second-time or serial founders, tend to be more plugged in and in the know of the various regional VCs, for example. Whereas if you are a first-time founder or you're from a part that doesn't have a very strong startup ecosystem, then you're very much just working off, you know, the online stuff, which is often a mix of like blogs and, you know, podcasts and articles, but unnecessarily doesn't, you know, cut to the chase of like like you said like are they a good you know partner right are they a good board member I think this levels the playing field but I think there's several iterations like you said of product I've fit
0: I think it's a good first step I think it's a good first step
1: I guess one thing that is interesting is that historically startup media has always had tension in their relationship with VCs right I mean obviously there's a PR aspect where VCs want to be mentioned favorably obviously so that for the context of consumption of their news articles by founders as well as by LPs as well as other stakeholders and talent platforms, these news platforms have to get news, right? And they get referrals for leads, they get quotes from VCs, but also they find that, you know, if they do investigative journalism, et cetera, this also gives them the eyeballs and clicks and memberships as well. So this does feel like, in general, I think a review site of founders reviewing investors is generally founder-friendly, right? So I think it's links towards the founders. And the truth is, I think there's a lot more founders and people who want to be founders who are interested in how VCs operate. I think it'll be interesting to see how Tech in Asia navigates that relationship They say, of course, they're part of Straits Times now, the Singapore press holdings group. So maybe they care less or they don't worry as much. I don't know if that's a a fair assessment. But I think it's being part of a larger mothership does give them a little bit more buffer, I think.
0: I mean, Straits Times is a beacon of journalistic freedom. Just letting all opinions thrive.
1: Yeah, you know, I think what's interesting is that when you have a stable source of revenue, when you have a mothership that has the buffer, then you get to be more independent in in other ways. And I think that's one of the interesting parts about Wall Street Journal and the York Times, right, is that they feel very secure because their financial revenue streams are strong. And so they feel like they can discuss politics however the way they want to do it, which is I think makes it an interesting thing to read in terms of their documentary and features. I also do appreciate what Tech Asia has been doing for investigative journalism. I think they've done a great job following Industry Asia to some extent as well, in terms of figuring out what the scoops are. I would say that New Street Asia seems to be focused a little on cracking the news early, maybe by day or week, right? And then let's say that Tech in Asia seems to be doing more of the in-depth journalism approach, which is like, I think they recently discovered that one of our founders didn't go to school or was not who he represented himself to be. And I think they've done multiple types of those stories, which I think is really good for the ecosystem.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, something that pops up periodically in the ecosystem is fraud or accusations of fraud. And it always makes me like kind of bummed because to me, it just shows how much further we have to go as an ecosystem. So I think like a key part of the innovation and startup ecosystem is the notion that it is a repeated game. And I'll talk about that, right? Which is that most startups fail. That's actually just a fact of life, which means you probably want multiple shots on goal before you hit it. And the only way you get multiple shots on goal is if you maintain a reputation for integrity so that people want to continue to do business with you. They want to continue to work with you. They want to fund you. They're willing to buy your alpha MVP product. That's not that great yet, you know. And so when I see these sort of fraud instances it just sort of reminds me that like we're in this weird period where there's been an explosion of capital in this ecosystem over the last 10 years and there are people who are like oh man look at those gullible fools handing out money to people starting companies, I'll start a company and tell them we're going to be a unicorn and, you know, take the money and run or just do sort of unsavory things. And I always tell people, like, if your founder wants to cheat you, they will. It doesn't actually matter how many covenants or provisions you write into your docs. Somebody who spends 24-7 on their business is always going to know it better than you and will figure out ways to screw you, which why, you know, sorting for integrity is a really important part of investing. But I think it's like an ecosystem thing, too, which is like they're not here to play the game and they're just perhaps rationally thinking, hey, there's easy money for the taking now. I'll take it and then I don't actually need to start anything or work again. I don't need to interact with these people ever again. But that does make me a little bit sad.
1: Yeah, I think what's interesting is that to see that how I think we're starting to see that wave of allegations come out in terms of the public domain. So I think there was a recent article regarding Industry Asia on Allegations for Investree, right, which is on Indonesia on the fintech side. I think there were also a lot of customer complaints about allegations for Solarium in the Philippines. I think we saw tech in Asia's kind of investigative reporting as well. So I think that's actually quite a wave, and I think frankly, the tip of the iceberg personally i mean for myself i've done due diligence as well so so, (laughs) similar i guess to what glasswall is doing right you know founders need to do due diligence on vcs i've also myself done due diligence on founders and honestly i've just seen quite a lot of stuff that's made me walk away and i think for me the moments where i'm just like this incompetence or is this intentional right and at what level of scale does it become too huge? And I think that's something that I'm not sure what the right answer is, but obviously part of the due diligence or meeting process, you just disengage and you move on. You're not trying to leave reviews, for example, on founders. That's not the point of it. But I do feel like there's quite a few more stories going to come out in the next two years, I would say. Because I think when capital was high, like say during the bull market, then... All these things are all just less visible because it's high growth, all these numbers. but now, if capital is getting scarce and all these numbers start having to tie together, I think this just becomes a lot more obvious.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it goes back to, did you start a company to raise money or did you start a company to make money? And maybe in your mind, raising money and making money were the same thing. But if you started a company to make money, it's like you know, nutrition and weight loss. I got a nutritionist a couple of years back. And my friends are like, oh, you document everything you eat. You send it to your nutritionist. I was like, yeah. And they're like, but what if you eat something that's not good for you? Right. Do you still send the photo? And it's like, yeah, because who am I cheating but myself? Right. Like, you know, even the nutritionist I hired is like to help me be healthier. And if I don't send the curry puff photo or whatever, like at the end of the day, you know, I ate the curry puff. Right. So I feel like the same thing about like fake numbers is okay. Maybe you like get away with it for some short period of time, but if. At the end of the day, like your business is not sound, you're screwing yourself. And maybe that was your plan all along, which is just to leave somebody else holding the bag. But that is so, I don't know, deeply cynical and not fun that I really just hope that we can orient the ecosystem towards more positive ways of business building.
1: Yeah, I I think I'm a little bit more empathetic on this one, which is I don't think most of the founders start out saying my goal is to raise money and, and and defraud investors, employees, and customers. I think my belief structure here is, like you said, the ecosystem is relatively young. So a lot of founders are, obviously, they go out. And let's be real, if you, your company dies at, you know, you raise $200,000 and a company dies after that, there's no fraud, there's no nothing, goes, right? I think the tricky part that like, you're implying a little bit is that you know, when they raise $5 million, $10 million, $20 million, $100 million of capital, there's a lot of it. And then, like you said, a lot of the fiscal restraint goes away. Sure, it's on the company spending side, but the fiscal restraint on the controls and all these things kick in. I think when things start to go wrong, I think people start to panic because they don't know how to wind things down gracefully. They don't know how to go through this stuff. And I think that's when the fraud triangle starts to happen, right? The pressure slash opportunity arises, right? The incentives are there because you want to save the company or save yourself. And then you take the moment and seize it. So it's not good. But I think there have been multiple times now. I've heard stories of like founders transferring capital from company bank accounts to personal bank accounts or wallets. And I just have to say that's not acceptable in any scenario. I mean, if you're an executive officer on fiduciary duty, I don't see any reason why you would move money from a corporate account to a personal account. So it's always mind-blowing just to hear multiple accounts now over the past one year now of it happening in multiple geographies. It's kind of mind-boggling.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think on the wind-down topic, I I think the scenario is like you raised a bunch of money. And the business isn't like the business metrics are not catching up to the valuation that you last raised at. And maybe you haven't spent all the money. And so you're trying to be like, hey, can I pivot this thing into something that is worth that last round value or not? And sometimes the answer is you can't. And sometimes the answer the right thing to do is to actually return capital. But I think that is a rarely exercised muscle. And there aren't that many examples of people who have done it in the ecosystem. So they don't have that example. like. You don't have anyone to be like, oh, this person did it gracefully. And I can call them and be like, how'd you decide to do this? And so it becomes like random spending. As you try to find a pivot or if the investors force it and say like, hey, it looks like a couple of quarters have gone by and you haven't really made progress. I think the right thing to do is return the money. Then there's this sort of reckoning where you're like, wait, I spent whatever, four years of my life on this and like I don't have anything to show for it. And then I have to return the money and shut the company down and almost admit that it failed. I think that's also a really hard emotional thing to do. And Mm -hmm. I think there also have been instances of founders holding the investors hostage a little and saying, I will only agree to do this if you pay me out. Yeah. And while you can sort of see the rational argument, it often leaves a bad taste in people's mouths. And if you think this is a repeated game and you are gonna go start another company and raise money again, you know, I think my advice would just be to like think about how you treat people on the way out with as much courtesy as you treated them on the way in when you wanted their money to back your idea
1: i mean the founder argument would be like hey i worked like a dog for four or five years and i was paid very low and i done my best and i raised lots of money and so i need something to move me to the next chapter of my career what do you think about that argument
0: okay with that if it's true but generally if people have raised Mm -hmm. tons of money they've already increased their salary for themselves yeah and they may have also taken secondaries along the way yeah You know, it's just, sure, if you were paying yourself $2,000 a month the whole time that you raised, I don't know, $50 million or whatever it is, yeah, I could buy that. And I don't think anyone would begrudge you that. But I think if you've already raised a bunch, you pay yourself market rate salary, and then you try to hold people hostage by saying, hey, I need another payout and not really thinking about everyone else, especially the people who gave you money early. I feel like that's kind of shitty. And in contrast, I think there are actually founders who didn't raise that much money, who work really hard to try to, you know, give something back to investors because they feel like they took your money and they sort of made you a promise. And and in those cases, you know, I tell them like, hey, they feel really bad. And I say, they say, hey, I'm going to make money for you on the next one, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, hey, man, I appreciate you going back for us. I appreciate you trying to return something when you felt like it was going sideways. As long as you communicate clearly and are, Upfront, like I think everybody feels institutional investors are not novices right they know they're going to lose money on some of the deals but I think it's about how you treat people even when things are going badly so that when you come back around and try to play the game again people are ready to back you
1: yeah I think you know in the list of bad things to do or ungrace obviously I think hopefully in the you do it in a graceful way there's an orderly shutdown you do your best to return cents on a dollar with zero off the dollar that's okay and I think somewhere below that would of course be you know like negotiating hard for your exit package but at least, you know, I think the worst, of course, is if there's actual fraud, right? I think when there's an actual breach of fiduciary duty, I would say it's probably like the worst. And I think this tier is surprisingly common, I would say, because of the accounting that we've seen. But also, I think some other factors also make it more likely. I think some verticals, there's more of established practice of kickbacks, right? So normal business practice in the incumbent industry is some level of kickbacks or commission or whatever it is. And then the startup that's trying to disrupt that ends up absorbing that behavior to basically, you know, deal with that. But then by digesting the company in two different ways, one is that approach sometimes can be tinkered with an accounting way to make it palatable, I guess, or cloak from understanding investors, I think is one way. But I think the other way gets killed is because of that culture ends up embedding themselves into maybe the, you know, lower ranks of the workforce or even at the co-founder level. So I think those are the kind of like the paths that I've seen where the startup that's trying to be, you know, disruption of an income industry ends up getting swallowed in the practices of the industry. Something not unique. I've heard that this happens in other emerging markets as well because of the practices there. But I think that's something that's, I would say it's a factor that I think I've come to learn over the past few years.
0: Yeah, but I think, you know, you look at job descriptions to find out what people care about because they're actually hiring against it and there was a JD for a fraud officer at Vertex right with sort of like a forensic accounting background required or desired and so you know I think you made the comment to me I feel like every fund is going to have one I mean I think that is part of the job of investors to be able to diligence those things effectively but I think I'm hoping that there is a positive force as well on what we expect people to do and behave. And I don't know. I mean, I think people will be like, oh, Silicon Valley is full of fraud. And I don't actually think that's true. I think they're very high profile cases that have had movies made of them. But the vast majority of people are in a pretty tightly knit ecosystem and want to play the game. They want to keep having a shot on goal. Right. And it's a small enough place that people can call up your old employer and be like, what was this person like? or your old investor. And so I think it's actually harder to get away with some of this stuff.
1: But I think what's interesting is that the fraud manager is going to do two actions, right? One is that they have to prevent fraud. And I think it shows that job description. In the screening process, being able to support the investment and reviewing the common tricks that may happen, right? Ranging from accounting, the financial flows, the conflicts of interest, the related party transaction. And I think the other part that was interesting about JD was also working with the portfolio companies to make sure they don't go such, right? I think that's the governance piece. I think, there's, I think there's a trust dynamic that if you are a lead investor, that as you kind of move from pre C to C, the series A, the series B, series C, I think every kind of investor looking at the earlier investor and trusting that they have done the legwork, the governance to make sure that, you know, nobody kind of like fell off the train tracks, not just economically, but also in terms of the fiduciary duty, right? And I think that level of trust, I think, has started to get a bit broken. I would say it's Southeast Asia because we, all these nonsense stuff is happening, right? And so I think everybody, like you said, every fund is going to have to staff up one person just to be like, hey, you know, like we have to trust, but also verify that the governance in the preceding stage has done not just sufficiently, but in a way that also accounts for all the various scenarios that we've talked about.
0: I think that's right. And it's funny, right? When people are like, well, what do investors want to see? And it's like, well, imagine if you were an investor and everyone kept asking you for money. What would you want to see? You know, I, I feel like sometimes people get twisted around in circles and a lot of it is actually very straightforward and practical,
1: right? Yeah. I think it's spot on the phrase they say, right? It's like, I think a lot of founders say, what do you want to see? And investors are happy to answer that. But then the founder you know, has a choice, which is that they can either build it to give you what you want to see or they can fake it. Right? And that lie, whatever it is, that gap can make it a large thing, right? And one of the interesting things in a parallel field I was reading was that academic fraud is something that happens. And what's interesting is that professors have an incentive to publish papers, but also publish papers that are material. And so there's a strong incentive to fudge numbers and so, so forth so that the findings are more tremendous. But the corollary of that is that if fudging your papers makes it more likely for you to get promoted, then if the system has been around for 10, 20, 30 years, then it turns out that the people who are at the top of the best universities and the best faculties, members, and some air quotes here, are more likely as a percentage of the population on average to have actually have had engaged in this fraud, right? And so I think there's this interesting dynamic where having to clean up this mess now because, you know, a lot of our top founders, I would say, startups in terms of heat, press coverage forth—you well, know, they're more exposed to the bear market. But also, I think if they're bad apples, then they're overrepresented and definitely much more visible than they would be at an earlier stage in terms of their uh, capital stage. Well, it'll clean up within two years, right? Because you know the average runway for a startup is two years. And if you drag it out, probably add up another one or two years of runway and clean up negotiations. So, I think the next generation of startups born out of the bear market should not only know the consequences from an economic, irrational, and iterated basis, but also I think they have the stories to know like, hey, don't be like this person. And I think stories are much more important, I would say that. Because I think logically, everybody kind of knows that there's not the best way or the right way to do it. But people need stories, I think.
0: Wait a second. So you're saying that people don't have a strong enough moral compass? And so if they see more stories of punishment, then they'll behave better?
1: First of all, that's the deterrent effect, which is that if you have a society that punishes wrongs, then guess what? People will embed that to their calculation from a rational basis, right? Whereas if you are in a society where and we talked about this, which is earlier in this episode, which is if we don't have transparency, in other words, we have opacity and if we don't punish bad behavior then people just do it right if they don't not that they want to do it but if they end up doing it they're not going to get penalized right yeah so i think that's the tricky part of the ecosystem that's all all right on that note peace out and see you next time thank you for listening to brave if you enjoyed this episode please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues we would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave.